Do you uh, currently have or have you ever had someone in your life that was 100% for you? Maybe it was a spouse or maybe it was a parent or a grandparent, a coach, a teacher. Maybe it was a really, really good friend. Uh, Whatever it is, it is a wonderful gift to have someone who's got your back no matter what. A person that really, truly wants what's best for you. That is a very good definition of love, jealously guarding the best interest of another person. There are people in my life that I love in that sense, where I really want what's best for them, and maybe I could tell them that, maybe they won't really believe me, maybe they think I'm just saying that just to be nice, but it's really true. You know how you know if somebody's not lying, too, if they say something like that, is if you would accidentally overhear them talking about you to somebody else in a positive way then you would know, like, okay, I know that this person is seriously cares about me. I, I heard them saying something positive about me to somebody else. Like there's this old saying that says, criticize in public, praise in, wait, the other way around. Criticize in private, praise in public, which is a great one. It's a really good one. I heard a, a piece of parenting advice once that said that like, you should allow your kids to overhear you talking, saying good things about them to somebody else sometimes. Because that, it's amazing what that can do for a person's confidence. It's, it's unreal. You know, I've, I don't think I've ever had that happen to me before in my life that I can remember with my parents. But I do know that oftentimes I would hear people say, like, in the store or something, oh, your grandma was bragging about you the other day. I did get that a lot growing up. Or, oh, your mom was telling everybody about this or that. And I would always play it off and be like, well, you know, you can't believe everything my mom says, you know. Or you can't listen. My grandma, she's just, she just talks, right? They can't be trusted. But, you know, it's true. It's like you know that somebody's talking good about you behind your back. That does something for you. Now imagine for a minute that, that you overhear Jesus talking about you to his Father in heaven. How does that make you feel? Does that make you nervous a little bit? Are you worried about what he might say? Well, you shouldn't be because, listen to me, Jesus is 100% for you. He loves you completely. There's no ulterior motive. There's no sin behind his love either. There's no hidden motives. There's no jealousy. There's no self-centeredness in his love, just you know, like the way we sometimes offer our love. That, there's none of that with Jesus. He loves you completely. And he starts talking about you behind your back. Well, here what we see in Scripture is it's actually right in front of our faces. And it's out loud. And this is what the disciples experience after their time with Jesus in the upper room, this prayer from Jesus is kind of like a window into the heart of his love for his followers. So it's a very special prayer. I, like I said last week when we just talked about John 17 as a whole, it's very, it's very loving, it's very pastoral prayer as well. And you can see the heart of Jesus in this prayer. He's praying to the Father in heaven, but he's praying out loud so the disciples all hear here. here. And seeing the heart of Jesus here reminds us that he didn't have to yell or he didn't have to beat his message into his followers. He simply loved them, he taught them, he prayed for them. And hearing and seeing his heart is uh, for his followers, that makes us want to love him in return and follow him in return. And so like, if I was to summarize this part of his prayer in one simple statement, I would say that Jesus' prayer gives us confidence knowing that God will keep his people to the end and that we will be sanctified by the word of truth. 
So overhearing Jesus' prayer for his disciples gives us that confidence knowing that God will keep his people to the end and that, he, and that we will be sanctified by the word of truth. So let me do a quick recap of John chapter 17, and then we're going to dive into this portion of his prayer here. It's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus oftentimes because it's a prayer that he offers for himself. He prays for himself before he offers himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And this section, this John chapter 17, marks this transition in the Gospel of John. He just finished his public ministry, and John chapter, six, or John chapter 13, it's the final supper, the final last meal with his disciples. And then his major, the big part of instructions is John 14 and 15 and 16. This huge portion of scripture that we call the upper room discourse, or the final farewell discourse. And in chapter 17 here, it's this transition from the meal and his teaching to the garden and then his rest and betrayal and the final, his final hours on, uh, on, in his life. And so last week we saw how Jesus prayed for himself to be glorified so that the Father would be glorified. And here, this is kind of like the second portion of his prayer in verses 6 through 19 where Jesus prays for his disciples as well. And we know that because in verse 20 right there, he says, I do not, at the very, you know, what Israel didn't read, I, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe. So we know he's asking for those who are listening to him right there. And there are really two main parts of this prayer. First of all, Jesus talks about his disciples, like I said, in front of their faces, or behind their backs, in front of their faces. And this is the encouraging part. If you were standing there listening to the words that Jesus was using as, he's, as he begins his prayer here about them. And then the second part is where Jesus actually has requests, his petitions to the Father on behalf of the disciples. And again, if I were listening in, I would be praying along with him and working to see his prayer answered because we know that Jesus' prayer will be answered. So who is Jesus talking about? Well, let's look at verse 6 here. He says, it begins by saying, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. In other words, Jesus made God's name, or you know, the, uh, God's name referring to who God is, the total completeness of who God is. Jesus made it clear. As in John chapter 1 says, that he revealed the glory of the Lord. We have seen the glory of the Lord in the person of Jesus. And who was that directed to Jesus says, it was to the ones that the Father gave to me. So the disciples. So four times in this chapter and three times in these few verses right here, the disciples are described as those people that were given to Jesus by the Father. So earlier in verse 2, he says, everyone you have given me. And then twice in verse 6, the people you gave me from the world, and then he says, you gave them to me. And in the middle of verse 9, we read, uh, those you have given to me. And Jesus uses this verb, have given. It's the perfect tense. So he's referring to something that happened in the past that has results that continues in the present. Those are, he says, those you have given to me. So in the past, God gave Jesus a specific group of people that are his and who continue to be his. God chose people, not based on any value of their own, and gave them as a gift to the Son in eternity past, just like we read in Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul told the believers in Ephesus that they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So prior to salvation, when we were cold, dead sinners, 
by birth and by choice, we have chosen to rebel against God. And the only way that we could ever come to him is as if he did this work in our hearts, drawing, him to, drawing us to himself. And when God does that work, we respond. Jesus said that his disciples were the fathers, but the father gave them to the son. And in verse 10, he speaks about the co-ownership here. All mine are yours and yours are mine, he says. So he's saying that what we have, we have together. So first, Jesus talks about who we belong to. We belong to the Father. We belong to the Son. And next, he describes their knowledge. And at the end of verse 6 and in verses 7 and 8 here, Jesus says that he has given the words to his people that were from the Father and that his disciples receive those words and they keep those words. And that is really a key theme in this prayer of Jesus here the importance of the words of God. Jesus said, remember at one point in the the Gospel of John, I spoke the words that you gave me to speak. And look at verse 8. He says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. So belief in Jesus always comes from receiving the words of God. So in other words, being nice, right? Being a kind person is great. Doing acts of love and community service is wonderful, but if we don't communicate the good news of the gospel with words, then the good news is never truly communicated. Romans 10, 13 through 17 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those, of who, those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see Paul's reasoning in Romans. So somebody is sent, the person who sent preaches, the person who preaches preaches the word, and people are converted because they hear the word of the Lord. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the disciples heard the word of Christ. They received the words of Christ. They understood it and they believed and now they are counted as those that Jesus is praying about. They heard and they responded. God does the work of calling sinners to salvation and our responsibility is to respond when we hear the words of God. So there is a fundamental lesson at work here and that is is the word does the work i love that phrase the word does the work i went to a pastor's conference several years ago in at alistair begg's church in um, up by cleveland and it was called basics because he just focused on the basics and that the theme though of the conference was the word does the work so if there is no word then there's no spiritual work that's going to get done and i can work as hard on my own as i want to do but if there's no word i'm going to be ineffective I can't accomplish anything without the word, and it's the word that's doing the work. So that in other words, in our own lives and in the church and in the lives of the disciples, it's the word of God that does the work of God for the glory of God. And you know what? Let's look at verse 10. It it talks about their achievement here. It says, I am glorified in them. Jesus is glorified in their lives. Have you ever noticed that God tends to pick the most unlikely people to save i don't know if it's just me you know maybe um like dl moody said i have more problems with the the man in the mirror than anybody else 
So maybe it's just me. I'm, I'm, that's who I'm looking at. I feel like God is always choosing people that they, they don't really deserve it and that you would never expect. I mean, look at, um, I don't know how you're, if you're doing a Bible, reading a Bible in a year. I just finished um, Genesis, and it's amazing to me. Again, I'm reminded of how often God chooses people that you would never pick. It's like he's always picking the wrong person, you know? I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that to try to be, um, ca- you know, critical of God, but he chose Abraham, who was like a, a moon worshiper, you know, worshiping not the true Lord. He picked Abraham, right, for no reason at all, to said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to be an awesome, you're going to be the patriarch. Abraham's like, I don't, what are you talking about, right? And then he has two children, but instead of picking Ishmael, he picks Isaac to continue that promised line. And then instead of Esau, he picked Jacob, the deceiver. Don't pick Jacob, right? And then out of Jacob's 12 sons, he chose Joseph for a special position. Not the oldest, not the youngest. It's like God was always picking people that you didn't expect and doing stuff that didn't, it's like there's a shorter road between A and B, God. Why did you take the detour? You know what I mean? You know why? It's so that God is most glorified through that. He picks the most unlikely person so that he receives the, mo- the most glory. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to confound the strong, right? And that's how Jesus is most glorified. So what a great way for Jesus to start off his prayer. And if you're listening to this, like you should already be encouraged just to hear the way the Lord Jesus is talking about you. And Jesus has basically said that he is honored by your life. As you have received the word, you know the word, you believe the word, and Jesus is glorified in your life. And so now we turn to the petitions of Jesus, his asks, you know, on behalf of his listeners. So what God has done for the disciples now leads into what God will do for his disciples. And the two key words here are keep and sanctify. Those are the two key words. Keep and sanctify. So the first request in verse 11. Holy Father, about halfway through there. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So this brings up a question that maybe you're thinking about. Is that I get asked from time to time, can a person lose their salvation? Well, I believe that scripture teaches that if you are truly reborn, born again, and that you have a saving faith in your soul, then you have it forever. Because you have it, you can never lose it. Now, maybe it seems like you have lost it, but if you like it, you've never really have it. I mean, because look at 1 John. It says, he's writing this letter in the church, and he says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us. A lot of times, you know, there's a lot of illustrations of, uh, of Jesus in his parables saying that there's tares growing up with the wheat. There's weeds growing up with the wheat, and they might look the same, but there's a question of fruit. And then the disciples, remember, said, you know, well, should we, should we like, try to do the sorting now? And Jesus says, no, let the Father do the sorting on the last day. So in other words, they're what I call false converts. There's always people that you may think they are, but they're not really Christians. They're fake Christians. Those who went out, John says, they, were, they seemed to be in the church, they seemed to be saved, but they were really never a part of us. On the flip side, I look at it this way. Hey, I did not have the power to save myself, to earn my salvation. So I do not have the power to blow it. 
you know? Or as many Bible teachers have said throughout the years, if I could lose my salvation, then I would have done it already. I know that's the fact. Our confidence in salvation doesn't come in our, from our own faith, but it comes through our faith in the one who has earned our salvation for us, Jesus Christ. He is the one who said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's like that picture uh, that I mentioned before of a father and son walking together. And let's say they approach something dangerous, like a cliff or something, a dangerous thing nearby. And so the father holds the child's hand. If the boy's safety depends on the strength of his grasp on the father's hand, then he could be in danger because he could lose his grip and he could fall to his death. What keeps the child from destruction is not the boy's grip on the father, but the father's grip on the child. And this is what Jesus was asking the father to do, to keep his grip on his disciples. That's why we sing that song sometimes here at church, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. When I think my faith has failed, he will hold me fast. So if you have repented of your sins and are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then be certain, you can be certain that you are protected. You will persevere. You will be kept by your Holy Father in heaven for the glory of him. And notice in verse 12, I will say in verse 12, look what he does. He does mention Judas. So can the experience of Judas be used as evidence that someone could have saving faith and then walk away? Well, no, because Judas was never really born again. You read through the the book of John, and every time they mention Judas, they're like the one who betrayed Jesus, right? He's always, remember, he's the one, well, Jesus at one time had called Judas a devil. He was numbered among the 12 because it says right here in verse 11 uh, as a fulfillment of scripture. So like even Judas and his betrayal being used, like it says earlier, we talked about in John 13, how the devil entered Judas and caused him to go do what, what he had set in his heart to do. So he was never really a part of them. He was there, but he, wasn't, he was never truly saved. So in verse 11, Jesus prays that the Father would keep them in your name. And this is important because Jesus is leaving the world, but he is leaving his followers in the world. And the world right there, used in this context, is, um, is our enemy because we live in this sin-filled wor- world. Jesus has already talked about this in chapter 15, when he said uh, that he, would, you, he told his disciples, you're going to be hated by the world. Look, the world hated me first, and if you're a follower of me, you're not going to be you know, loved. You're not going to be thought well of. You know, you're not going to be cool, okay? Because the world hated me first. They will hate you as well. And so every Christian needs to figure out how are we going to be in the world but not be of the world. Because obviously we are called to live different lives as Christians. And we shouldn't act just like the rest of the world if we are walking with Christ. We're going to look different. And our new life in Christ, it's going to show up in some major ways, but even in our daily lives in small ways as well. Because our lives is going to be going counter to the, the way the world is going. But we also can't just totally close ourselves off from the world. That's not what we are called to, to do as Christians as well. And so Jesus prays against that, that foe of the world. And he also prays against another foe of the evil one, as it says in verse 15. He's referring to the devil, the accuser who is working against our efforts of spreading the good news about Jesus. The devil is the one who tells lies and gets us to believe things that aren't really true and causes division. 
and causes us to question and doubt our own salvation. And Jesus prays for us to be kept from him. And he taught his disciples, remember what I said, this is really the real Lord's Prayer. The one we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray the disciples' prayer. Keep us from the, deliver us from evil. I mean, our enemies are real, and they want nothing better than for us to doubt God's love for us or God's security that we have in him. And that's why Jesus prayed to keep them, protect them. And there are also two goals that are achieved by being kept in him. The first is our unity that's mentioned in verse 11. And then the second is our joy that's mentioned in verse 13. Jesus prays that his followers would be one, he says, just as he is one with the Father. So as the disciples embrace this truth, they're brought into this new community of faith that we call the church. And entry into this community comes through believing in Jesus. And there is, the church is this, is meant to share this amazing level of unity, a unity that's, it's different than anything in this world. It mirrors the Trinity. And it's centered on his word. And so truth is the basis for unity, which goes against a lot of everything we hear in society. You know, we're told to, to minimize the truth and focus on, you know, just what we agree on and ignore the rest. But genuine unity never comes when truth is discarded because unity is the result of, uh, of grasping those truths of the Lord. It reminds me of a, a picture, an illustration, if you will, of the sport of rowing. I've never done rowing before. I've seen it on the Olympics, you know, they all are in a line in a boat. And the key to unity, uh, the key to winning in rowing is unity, isn't it? Because each oar must enter and exit the water at precisely the same time if the boat wants to maintain speed. And the way the rowers stay in sync is by listening to that person who's yelling. The coxswain, it's called. The coxswain doesn't row. He sits in the back of the boat and calls out the strokes. He's the only person that faces forward, so the entire crew must listen to the coxswain's commands and responds. Well, what happens is when that takes place is the boat flies right through the water. Unity doesn't come from everyone rowing their hardest and doing their own thing, but from everyone submitting to a single voice. And as the disciples submit to the voice of God, they grow more and more of the same mind. And their thoughts and their desires and their intentions begin to mirror God's, and they experience uh, a unity that's very unfamiliar to the world. And it's wonderful to be a part of. You know, team, being a part of team is a great experience unlike any other thing. You know, being a part of a rowing team when you know we, we, we might not be the strongest, but when we're in sync, we'll be the fastest. And that's how I view the church as well. You know, we can all do our own things, but when we are working together, we can accomplish so much more than when we're working individually. And God is glorified through that as well. So the second goal is for the disciples to have Jesus' joy. You know, it's not the first time he's mentioned this. And I love it. Again, in John, it's like it keeps coming up, right? The, the whole key theme of John is believe. And a couple of themes like love comes up a lot, but also joy. John 15, 11 is where Jesus said that he spoke these things so that his joy might be in them and their joy may be complete. And so it's kind of like I mentioned earlier too. It's John 17, this prayer of Jesus. It's almost like he's just like summarizing the whole book of John up till now. Like all these themes, I feel like we heard about this theme of joy 
back in John 15, right? We heard about this whole, you're in the world, but not of the world. We already heard about this back in John 13. It's like Jesus is, in his final prayer, he's like bringing it all together, right? He's bringing it all home, reminding them of all the things that I've taught to you. I'm praying for these things, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And that's one of the results of Jesus' prayers for his followers is joy. It's joy in the Lord. It's joy in the fellowship of other believers. And so I said there are two key words, right? So Jesus prays that you would keep them. So we talked about that. And then he also prays that they would be sanctified. That's because uh, those are the two main things. So sanctify, it means, uh, we think about sanctify as meaning to make clean, to make holy. And also it means to set apart. So it could be like, to be made clean in order to be set apart for God's work, to be made holy in order to be set apart to, for service. And verse 17, it says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, we are made holy by the truth of God's word. It was Jesus' desire that his disciples would become holy because really that's the purpose of our redemption. As Paul writes, he says, For the... Um, this is the will of God in your life, your sanctification. That's the will of God in your life, that you would become more like Jesus. That's what sanctification means. And how does that happen? It happens through the word of God. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. So in other words, we are brought to greater holiness greater godliness by renewing our minds in the word of God. And the purpose of our sanctification, it's not just to grow so that we can, you know, become a monk and live in isolation. We are set apart for, for service. We are sent on mission. That's why Jesus says to them earlier in this prayer, you know, he's, like I said, he says, hey, you are still in the world. I'm not going to be in the world, but you're going to be in the world. I'm not going to be here, but you're going to be here. So you can... Be encouraged today, believer. First of all, be encouraged because Jesus has already prayed that you would be kept in him. So you are going to be secure. You are secure. If you're washing the blood of the lamb, you, know, you are going to uh, be protected. You're going to be sanctified. And know this, that you are going to uh, have that assurance that, that you are one of, that you are, God is going to keep you to the end and that God is going to sanctify you by his word. And why are, we, why are we sanctified? It's sanctified in order to do the works that he has called us to do. And so I said in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. So again, he, Jesus is not saying, go right now, okay, in this prayer. He's not saying, go and do something. He's praying to the Father saying, and if you overheard him saying this, what would you think? That, um, that you are going to be sent, that you are sent. He, he didn't even have to say, I'm sending you. Because just hearing him pray, it's like, you know, like I said, you, you overhear somebody talking about you. Like if I said, oh, that person, they're, they're the nicest person, okay? And I overhear them, what am I going to be like when I'm around that person now? I'm going to be like, oh, they think I'm nice, you know what I mean? They think I'm nice. I, I'm going to be nice, you know, because they think I'm nice, you know? It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So they're listening to him, and they're like, man, Jesus knows me, he loves me, and he's for me. And so, man, this is, this is wonderful, and so he didn't have to leave talk to the disciples, and he's just hearing him pray, it's transformed. 
And so as a Christian today, I want to tell you that like we have the same mission that the disciples have. And now, you know where Jesus is? He ascended and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us on, on our behalf. So he is still praying for us today, praying those same prayers that God would keep you, that God would encourage you, that God would strengthen you, and that God is sending you out into the world. Because Jesus said to his disciples, the final thing he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Amen. That's the promise that we hold on to today. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the promises that we have in Scripture. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the promise that we have a Savior who is our mediator, the one who, is, who sacrificed himself for us, and not only that, who ra- was raised from the dead so that we could have eternal life and who is now ascended and sitting at the right hand of God, it's still interceding for us on our behalf. Oh, God, we thank you for the encouraging word that we have from your word. Oh, God, we pray that you would sanctify us and set us apart for your service and that you would work through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.